Well, I don't know what you've done in the last six weeks since Easter, but Jesus, in the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension, appeared in front of his followers numerous times. He was able to gather and be with them. He was among them when they were walking on the road to Emmaus. He entered a locked room in Jerusalem twice. He lit a fire on the shore of Galilee to cook a breakfast of fish. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us about those events. He takes us from outside the empty tomb to a mountainside, skipping over a number of other occasions where the risen Lord is being seen by a total of about 500 believers. And he puts them, he puts them with just the 11 disciples. Now we know who these men are because they're neatly named all together in Matthew 10 when they were commissioned to go out on an earlier occasion. They were to go out to the lost sheep of Israel. At that time, they were not to venture to the Gentiles. They were to be very focused in where they went, only to the lost sheep. And this earlier episode had clear instructions of what to take and how to act, what to do when you faced opposition. And it's perhaps because of the length of that passage that this one need not go into such detail, even though the task here at the end of the Gospel is so much greater to go out to all the nations. It would seem from the text that some had lingering doubts about the resurrection or about what was happening. Perhaps this relates to more than the eleven being there or reflects the description of some of the reactions and misunderstandings that we see in the other Gospels. And of course, we are not yet at the actual time of ascension. For Luke in Acts would put that on a hill just outside Jerusalem and not a hundred miles to the north. So that might lead us to the question of why the Gospel writer ends his account here in Galilee rather than there, rather than Jesus moving onwards. And the answer might lie in that this is not an end in itself, but a new beginning for his readership. And Matthew wants us to see that the city is no longer of central importance to believers. For his historical Jewish readership may have thought of the importance of pilgrimage, but the temple 
by the time he wrote this, had probably been destroyed. What is important to Matthew is who Jesus is, where the disciples will go, who they are to encounter, and what they are to do. Now, from the very first verse of the first first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, the writer wants us to see that Jesus is the King. He is the Son of David. And yet, while he gives us a genealogy that puts the Lord as a descendant of Abraham and of David, there is also the transposition that comes right at the end. That Joseph, of David's line, is not really the father, for the child of Mary is conceived by the Holy Spirit. It is this child, human and divine, who Magi, following a star, will travel to and bow before rather than Herod. It is this man, God's beloved Son, who can resist Satan's offer of all earth's kingdoms. It is he who humbly rides on a donkey, who Pilate sees has done nothing wrong, and yet is mocked by soldiers as a crown of thorns is placed upon his head, and he is led out to Golgotha. He is the king of the Jews, and also of the Gentiles, for he is the king of kings. And so, as the risen Lord commissions the disciples to go, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The kingship is not bound on earth. It's not of that earthly nature, but marks his divine place in the trinity of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There at creation, and which will be there into eternity. If the disciples don't doubt, but accept that this is his authority, then what else can they do but respond to the message of going into the world to baptize and make disciples of all nations? All nations throughout his created earth. And this speaks to us too. Eleven men were never going to be enough to take the gospel to the whole world. But as they make new disciples, those disciples will also engage in his mission. A disciple is not simply a believer in Jesus, but someone who will live Christ's way and follow his commands, which we thought of last week as having a two-part harmony, both rooted in love, love of God and love 
for the people of the world. As we love the world, we act kindly and justly, but we must also not be afraid to speak of our King. For to fail to speak of Jesus is actually unloving because it denies the opportunity of sins to be forgiven and eternal life to be known. Over the last year, many have found that the things they put their trust in and the things they relied on, that they leaned on in life, were actually brittle. And in the time of trial, they may have given way. Many who were comfortable have found great stress, not because of what they had done particularly wrong, but simply because the pandemic pulled the rug out from underneath them, throwing them all over the place. And it leads to the question of where can there be trust? In what can there be hope? And through God's love, we see hope in Jesus. In him, there can be trust. And he promises never to leave us. I am with you always, no matter what we go through, no matter what challenge we face. He is with us. Emmanuel. God is with us. The task of sharing to all the nations seems enormous. Back when I was born, the world's population is well, was half of what it is now, very roughly. Seven billion people are now across the surface of the earth. But in that same time of doubling of population, the number of followers of Jesus Christ has doubled. We might not always experience that in the West. But there is currently something like 3.2 billion followers of our Lord. In the overdeveloped world, as people trusted in their wealth and possessions, uh, elements of the church seem to be shrink. But globally, there is great growth. And what is required for great growth? All it needs is for each person to tell another of the love seen in Jesus. And for that person to accept Christ as Lord. It's not the challenge of one of us going to tell four billion. That would be beyond us. But it comes down to whether we tell just one other person. When they then also tell one and share their faith the church can grow rapidly. It's a chain reaction. So there is a sticking point. There is something that stops it. If our circle of contacts is limited just to believers, 
or if we don't share our faith. The church doesn't grow in number. It may still grow spiritually, and that is important. We, it is right that we should meet and encourage each other in our faith, and that is good, and we can do that in small numbers, we can do it as home groups, we can do it as a fellowship meeting together. But Jesus told us to do his command, to go, to be outward looking, to find those who are not of the faith and witness to them with his love, making them disciples, baptizing them, seeing them grow in his way. And so this is a challenge for each of us. As lockdown eases and life's restrictions relax, how will you spend the next six weeks? And what about the six weeks beyond that? And beyond that. As you meet and encourage those within the church in their life and faith, think too on how we can share our hope wider, that we may each play our part in making disciples in our community and in all the nations. Amen.